0: Welcome to The Foundry, where leaders are forged daily. Each week, we investigate themes of leadership, entrepreneurship, and mindset with some of the greatest minds in real estate. And now, the data scientist of real estate, George Roberts.
1: Welcome back, entrepreneurs. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Sari Ibrahim, founder of Financial Asset Protection and the Thinking Like a Bank podcast. We will be discussing the infinite banking concept and how you can use it to grow your wealth. Welcome to the show, Sari.
0: Hey, George. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Well, I'm really excited to do this show today because I think that there are a lot of people who have some confusion on this topic. And I know there's certainly a lot of questions that I want to ask you. But first of all, I would just like to start by saying, what do you tell people when they ask, what do you do for a living?
0: That's my favorite question.
1: Um, What do I do for a living? I, I start off by
0: saying, well, you know how real estate investors and business owners are constantly looking for capital? That's what I help them with. I help business owners, real estate investors find more creative and strategic ways of using their business. Uh, of funding their business, of looking for more capital. And it's primarily done as you started the podcast, done
1: through the infinite banking concept. All right, excellent. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about how that works. So usually what you have behind that, you've got some sort of a life insurance policy. So once you walk us through, somebody comes to you, wants to uh, you know, find a way to maybe between deals, stash some capital, see it grow. And then be able to borrow against it. How does that work?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, good question. So, so if you've never heard this concept before, this is all news to you. Uh, in in a very simple way, the infinite banking concept or the infinite banking system uses dividend paying whole life insurance. So, there's typically three kinds of life insurance. There's term life insurance, which most people, which if you have life insurance, most likely it's going to be term insurance. That's what you get through work. That's it's a it's a much cheaper form of insurance. It's very simple you have it for 10 years 20 years or 30 years there's a start date there's an end date and there's a fixed amount of life insurance for example you know 10 years of a million dollars that's a term policy and then where it gets a little bit more complicated there's whole life and universal life and other forms of cash value life insurance but two of the most common cash value portions are, are uh, universal life and whole life and with these you have life insurance same with the term you, you also have life insurance but you also have cash value that grows inside of it. You can get interest, you can get dividends, you can follow the market, uh, different components of that. So what infinite banking does, in infinite banking is, is that it uses cash value, whole life insurance. So that's a whole life policy with the death benefit component and a cash value component. And then you could use the cash value, you could borrow against it as like a line of credit, you could borrow against it, use to be a limited partner in a syndication, used to fund for your actively real, active real estate portfolio, for your business for whatever you want to use the money for you can use it. there are no restrictions on what you can use the money for so that's what we help clients with we help them build out these whole life policies build as much cash as they can in them and then leverage that, take out loads against that and then use to buy properties to invest in properties and then the benefits of doing so number one there's a lot of tax benefits so the, the money that grows in these policies grows tax-free if it's a not if it's not something called a modified endowment contract if it's not a modified endowment contract then the loans, the withdrawals, the income, everything about the policy is going to be tax free. Um, and then, you. so that's one big benefit. Second benefit is there's a lot of asset protection behind these policies. So depending on the state you live in and check with your attorney, these policies are typically exempt from bankruptcy and other judgments. So there's a lot of asset protection with these policies. And then number three, the growth of the policies happens regardless of market conditions. So if you invest in real estate or stocks or whatever, and those investments decline in value or do go, or go down in value, your policy remains the same and it's not affected by market conditions. So there's a little bit more benefits, but those I think are probably the top three, uh, especially for the real
1: estate investor who's probably listening to this podcast, wants to really kind of understand and dive into. You mentioned tax-free and that is a great thing. I know one of the advantages of life insurance is that if you have money to pass on, that's a good way to do it in a tax-free fashion. Yeah,
0: exactly. So, if you, for example, if you left, um, like if you had money in a checking account and a brokerage account and other types of accounts um, or assets, and then you pass away and then you leave that to your beneficiaries, it's going to be exposed to all types of taxes, like gift taxes, estate taxes, um, death taxes, um, income taxes too, in some situations. So, with life insurance, it can be passed on to whoever you want in case something happens to you, income tax free. It could still be exposed to estate taxes. Uh, but the threshold is so high; it's like 13 million as a for, per person. It's like 13 million, right? Um, in, for 2023, so it's a very most people don't even uh, state taxes are not even much exemption. higher. I think usually estate taxes are triggered at five, correct? Uh, so there's an exemption, and then any mm-hmm. amount below 13 million is a state tax free. If it goes above yeah. that amount, then it trigger it triggers estate taxes. But most people right. don't leave you know over 13 million dollars for their for the beneficiaries so it could be income tax free in other words you could leave it for your beneficiary right. income tax free um and then yeah and then they could take that money and then they could start more policies this is a big component of like this is a big reason why a lot of how a lot of rich families were able to continue wealth from like over the last 100 years mm-hmm. was through life insurance was just through those mm-hmm. tax the, the the tax uh advantage death benefit from generation to, to generation
1: right and then deeper into how this works so you, you put the money in, mm-hmm. you have a certain cash value to your policy, and then you can borrow up against that. Now, how much can you generally borrow? Yeah, good question. So I'll, I'll give you a very simple example. So
0: if a client puts in $100,000 as, as, a, as a premium, and I always use the same example, so it's because it's easy math. So it's $100,000 as a premium. That's the, that's, a, that's the amount of money you're putting into the policy. And this is also a single premium policy, meaning it's just a one-time payment. You put one one time $100,000 in, as soon as you do that, your cash value is like somewhere around $92,000 right away within 30 days, the cash surrender value. And then your death benefit could probably be, depending on the person's age and their health, could be around $200,000. So mm-hmm. this is day one. Now you could take out a loan for 90% of the cash surrender value. So mm-hmm. about 90% of 92,000, which comes out to about 85,000 roughly, um, the, the amount you could take out as a loan within 30 days. But the, now some people, some people, someone will be listening. Like, OK, what's the big deal about that? Why? Why do that? So uh, a couple of things. So the cash value and the death benefit both grow every single year. You're not putting in any more dollars into the policy. It continues to grow. If you take out a loan, it still grows, whether you take out a loan against it or not. So now there is arbitrage, a possibility of arbitrage happening. And that is where you borrow from point A and then you deploy at part B and then the growth at part B is greater than at at point A. So there was a split like you took from one market and then you sold to a different market and then you kept the difference. That's exactly what people do with these policies. They borrow at a a lower rate. They may invest in a deal with you or another multifamily syndication or another type of fund or asset and then potentially could earn, you know, greater than 10% internal rate of return on that investment. And then there's going to be a split now. They made more money with that money, and then they could they can pay back the loan. They can start another policy and then keep recycling the process. They might also be able to add more money into the policy, depending on how it's structured. But that's kind of a very uh, basic example
1: of the $100,000 sure. single premium example. So I think what stops a lot of people at this point is that it just sounds kind of too good to be true, right? I put it at $100,000. I get a debt benefits. And immediately surrender cash value not immediately, but say within thirty days, mm-hmm. it's ninety two thousand dollars. I can borrow ninety percent of that, mm-hmm. right? So I can get uh, you know, over eighty thousand mm-hmm. dollars of loan. Basically, I get a large proportion of my money back. But wait, that ninety two thousand dollars of cash value, whatever that's invested in, whether it's stocks, bonds, mm-hmm. or some other type of investment within the insurance policy, mm-hmm. That still grows. So how is it all possible?
0: Yeah, a couple of things. Yeah, so you're right. It it grows. It's mostly going to be invested in bonds and other conservative investments. So it has a lot to do with the law of large numbers. The law of large numbers is where you have millions or hundreds of thousands of customers all paying in premiums. And the insurance company is able to manage it. The insurance company essentially is a professional investment company, right? They manage assets for a living. That's what they do. That's what they're really good at. But they do it in a way where it's mostly related to bonds and conservative investments. So they have a lot of customers, they have a lot of premiums. And then they're also buying bonds, uh, typically uh, at a lower rate than an individual buying bonds. And there's right. also like, for instance, if you invest in bonds right now and you earn 5% a year on that, uh, that's not going to get you. That's not going to really make a, a big impact in your portfolio. For most people, it will make a big impact in their portfolio. But when an insurance company invests, you know, five billion dollars in bonds, and they're getting a five percent cash on cash return on that, or not cash on cash return, but a five percent interest rate on that annually, and, and that's that that interest alone they can pay their administrative expenses from it. So that's that's kind of the idea, the philosophy behind using insurance contracts is that there's a lot more stability and there's a lot more things you can do with these contracts and an individual kind of, it works very similar to multifamily investing. Like right now, if I had $50,000 to invest in real estate, there's not much I could do, right? I can maybe find uh, a house somewhere that, you know, that's 150,000 and I can put a down payment on it and then fix it up. And then, but that's very limiting, right? I can either flip it or, or rent it out for a thousand dollars a month. There's not, it's not going to make a big impact to my portfolio, but if I take $50,000 and I, and I join with 30 other people, and then we buy a $10 million building, then that can make a bigger difference. I could probably get a higher rate of return with that because there's more leverage and there there are more moving
1: parts to that.
0: Very similar with insurance contracts.
1: Right, well, another difference between, like say you just take out a loan yourself, I mean, the insurance company knows they're getting paid back, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, it's it's probably their safest investment. So when you take when you when you get a policy, right? In the same example here, the hundred thousand dollar example, you take out a loan for eighty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That loan, it's a loan. It's not a, a, you're not withdrawing your principal. You're taking out right. a loan from the insurance company. So that's almost like an investment. That's like a separate investment for the insurance company. Mm-hmm. They're going to give you a personal loan for eighty five thousand dollars using your policy as collateral. And that loan the insurance company gives you is probably their safest investment they have because if you don't pay it back then they take it out right. of the debt benefit many years exactly. later you no know? uh so it's a it's a good it's a good deal for both it's a good deal for the client and it's a good deal for the insurance company and exactly uh, go
1: ahead. oh sorry what i was going to say is that uh you know they they really have zero risk in making that loan and that's separate and apart from anything else that that you would see anywhere else in in the financial world mm-hmm. but then again you know uh, for all those people who and i'm just largely including myself in this category yeah. who who hear about this, say the first time and say, well, but it still just seems like too good to be true. You know, how, how does it work? And, and why don't I just put, say you have a hundred thousand dollars in your example. Yeah. Now, if I put a hundred thousand dollars into a private stock account, uh-huh. then I can borrow against that. Right. But that's not going to be as efficient as your policy. Can you explain why? Yeah, exactly. Because what are interest rates now, right? On those types of loans, I would I wouldn't
0: be surprised if they're north of eight percent or nine percent on those types of right. loans. So that right there could be a delta right there, just the interest rates mm-hmm. alone. Because you would have to you would have to make sure that your stocks grow greater than eight percent a year, which nobody mm-hmm. can predict that. So that's one big right. problem there. Um, and then the other problem is could, you're still paying taxes on the growth, right? It depends if it's in a brokerage account and you're still paying taxes. If it's $100,000 in a qualified account, like an IRA, then you can't take out loans right? against an IRA. Right. So there, there could be some some ideas. The, the concept is very similar. You have an asset, you buy an asset, and then you take out a loan against that asset. But really, the way that life insurance loans work are very different. Like, number one, there's no credit checks or credit implications. doesn't show up on your yeah. credit score. It's it, it is based off of interest rates, but not directly. For example, okay. Uh, back in 2020, when when mortgage rates were around 2.6 or 2.7 percent, uh, you had life insurance loans were 5 percent simple interest. Fast forward to today, where uh, mortgage rates are like over 7 percent right now at the end or close to the end of 2023, the uh, life insurance loans are still 5 percent simple interest. So they are connected to interest rates, but not directly. Like if interest rates go up on mortgages, it's not going to directly increase interest rates on Policy loan. So that's another advantage too, is that you get usually a cheaper interest rate with life insurance loans and there's no credit implications and they're not directly tied
1: to, they don't move as fast as other market trends do. So just to sum it up, it seems that first of all, you're getting a lower uh, interest rate partly because you got the full collateral as a result of the death benefit. Um, you're you're also going to get a higher loan amount. Like in this example, it looks like you're getting about a little over eighty thousand dollars versus fifty thousand. You can take out. You don't have to deal with the possibility of a margin call. Yeah, and they mm-hmm. don't ding your credits. So, a lot of advantages to that. But again, it all flows into how these things are set up. And I know that the, your success as as a client in one of these situations is determined largely by how well they are set up. So mm-hmm. explain what are you doing to maximize or optimize the uh, the cash value and the other benefits such that it really makes sense as an investment vehicle, not just as a, as a means of, for example, uh, passing on money to the next generation or some of the other reasons that people use life insurance.
0: Exact. Good question. Right. So many people, when they think of life insurance, they think of the death benefit, like leaving money for the next generation. That is still a that that's still an important concept or idea for for a lot of an important objective for a lot of clients. Uh, but really, I'd say what's more relevant, what's more pressing, is the cash value that they could use for investments. And that's a, a more of a, a relevant conversation to have. I'd say it definitely has a lot more to do with the who that's involved, the advisor that's involved, than just the title of the product, right? Because I don't want you to listen to this podcast and say well I'm going to go out and buy a whole life insurance policy from any company mm-hmm. from any agent because right. there's over two, there are over 2000 insurance companies and each insurance company has many products in 10 20 different products and each product has 10 or 20 different ways you could structure it so you could think of all the variances of how you could uh, of a whole life insurance it, it's it's too big too broad to just paint it all with the same brush so you want to make sure that it's the the advisor understands the use of cash value whole life insurance the growth of these policies, uh, using them for investments. Uh, with that, there's it has to be structured a proper way. Now, what does it mean to to properly structure a, a policy? It means that in this example, right, we have about ninety two percent liquidity. So, if you put hundred thousand dollars in, at the end of the year, you say, you know what, I want to I want to cancel this, even though you don't have to. You just say, I want to cancel yeah. this. The insurance company writes you a check for for uh, ninety two thousand dollars. That's a ninety two percent liquidity ratio. That means that that policy. Cost you 8%. So, you know, $8,000 in this example. Now, believe it or not, in the life insurance world, that's a very high liquidity ratio. If you go to one of the traditional whole life policies, it might take you 10 years just to get some cash value. So, to get 92% of your money back in year one, that's a very high liquidity ratio. That's what you're you're looking for small things like that, like the amount of capital you have year one in the policy. You're also looking for something called uh, non direct recognition rather than direct recognition. So, Non-direct recognition is you have a policy, this example, 100000 you take out a loan, 85000 Next year, you still keep earning interest and dividends on the policy, even though you have an outstanding loan. If it's a direct recognition policy, your loan, your dividends and interest might be uh, discontinued or they might be uh, not credited because of the outstanding loan. So you want to make sure it's non-direct recognition. It's also like say, for example, you have a house that's the market value of it is $500,000. You take out a loan against the house, it does nothing for the market value, right? The market value still remains the same. You just have an outstanding loan against it. Same thing with these policies. You want to make sure that the loan you take out against it does not impact the market value or the or the, the face amount of the of the policy. So those are a couple of things that would be would consider it a, a good structure. Also, there's something called the paid up additions rider. The, pay, the paid up additions rider it, it results in a higher cash value growth early on, early and later on and as well as flexibility. So some years you could do, and some of these policies, the way we structure them for clients, one year you could do 10,000, another, another year you could do 3,000, another year you could do 12,000. And a lot of our clients, because we specialize in we specialize in working with real estate investors and business owners, it's very difficult to say, I'm gonna do $10,000 a year for the next 30 years. But a lot of clients can do 2,000 here, 8,000 here, 12,000 here, depending on how the year goes, depending on how commissions go, depending on how much capital they raise, depending on when they exit real estate deals. So you want those, you want flexibility, you want direct, non-direct recognition, and then you want the ease of using uh, the policy.
1: Excellent. So then there are at least two ways, or I should say two uh, sort of chassis that you can construct this on. So you can use the uh, indexed universal life, or you can use the whole life. Uh And tell us which one you choose for your policies and why.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I can, if I want to, I could do index universal life for clients, but I choose not to because index universal life, for those who don't know, it was invented in the '80s and it was invented as a way for insurance companies to compete with mutual funds and other brokerage uh, stock accounts. So what it, what it is is that you get a, a policy, right? It's a whole, it's a it's an index universal life policy. It's a life insurance policy with the cash value component. The cash value component follows the market. It's not invested in the stock market; it just follows a, a stock market index, like the S and P 500. So you put money into it and then there are certain caps and minimums, usually a 0% floor. So your money can't, if the S&P 500 goes down 10%, negative 10%, your cash value can't go down negative 10% because it's typically a 0% floor. So it stops at zero. Uh, so it's, it seems very attractive for clients. And there's usually a cap on how high you can go. Usually it's like 6 or 7% cap. So if the S&P 500 goes up 10%, right. it goes up with it up to about 7%. So that's good too. The, the biggest problem with, Index universal life policies is the annual, there's something called annual renewable term. This means that every single year your policy is re-rated and then the expenses increase on it. So that could eat into your that that will actually eat into your cash value right. year after year. Whole life policies are the complete opposite of that. They are heavily, I guess, if the heavily front loaded with the expense up front. So, you know, in this example, year one, 92% liquidity ratio, 8%. That's the most expensive the policy will be in year one. Uh, it keeps getting cheaper year after year. And then eventually it goes to, to a break even point. And then after the break even point, it's essentially all profit at that point. It's, you're, you're getting more money out of the policy than you put into it. With index universal life policies, the, the cost of insurance increases every single year. So a lot of advisors who sell index universal life stick on the 0% floor. Like you can never lose money in, a, in an index universal right. life policy because it's 0% floor. But the reality is it is 100% possible to lose money in the index universal life policy because of the, the rise of the cost of insurance. So, as Right, every year
1: of- you get more candles on the birthday cake <laughs> and and that yeah. term life component's going to go up. Exactly, yeah. And it
0: goes up, dramatically goes up. So from age 40 to 45, to right. 50, you'll see huge jump in the fees because of that.
1: All right, awesome. Well, I'd like to switch over a little bit here. So you are you know not just an investment advisor but also an entrepreneur and i know that you founded uh, financial asset protection is the name of your company so can you give us some tips about people who are trying to grow a business scale what are some of the pitfalls that you found along the way and what do you do to overcome those hurdles
0: yeah there's a lot a lot of pitfalls right i'd say number one have a a, a business plan review the business plan daily this is where I think a lot of entrepreneurs also make mistakes is that they want the business plan to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect, right? But you want to have an idea of what you believe in, where what your vision is for your company, what your vision is as far as your company and the world. Like, How do you see it affecting or changing people? I and mean, then you want to revisit that every single day so that way you don't get sidetracked with other opportunities, other investments, things that will pull you away. I've noticed that for myself as well as a lot of other clients I worked with who are entrepreneurs, that was probably the biggest thing that held them back were was other opportunities, other things that came their way that took them away mm-hmm. from what they were working on. So if you revisit your priorities, if you re- revisit your goals, your vision every single day and, and really cement it into your business, it's going to be very difficult for you to leave and go to something else. But then it goes to the other thing and another argument might come up and say, well, what if your business is not working out or your strategy is not working out? Should you not pivot? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely. You should pivot, but I think you should still pivot and still remain. The vision should still stay the same. Um, But the strategies you do, the methods you apply, the marketing strategies, the people you work with, the clients you work with, investors. Yeah, obviously those things are going to change, but your vision has to remain the same. And And your vision has to constantly be uh, revisited because it's very possible for you to forget your vision one day and then maybe remember it a month later or a year later. So constantly re- coming back to your vision. Another thing, another thing too, I would recommend for entrepreneurs is get very, very good at your numbers. Know how much you make, know how much you spend, know your um like be your best CFO that you have. Um your accountant's not going to be able to do that for you. You're not your accountant's not going to be able to, you know, understand all the numbers like you. They might just have highlight the, the highlight of your numbers like the amount of taxes you'll pay, the your your overall expense ratio, uh, but you know your numbers better than anyone. So get really comfortable with looking at your numbers every day, uh, tracking your debt, tracking other things, and then it connects to your vision, right? Like what are you really trying to accomplish? And it helps move that forward. And then of course, getting a getting a mentor, that's a big one too, right? Like I've had many mentors, life coaches, business coaches. It makes a huge difference. It could be the reason why you succeed or don't succeed. Is you know, having somebody that has someone that can give you not just advice, but give you the freedom to think and believe in yourself and test things out. Uh those I think those three things are critical for any, any small, especially especially as a new small business owner.
1: All right. Outstanding. Thank you so much for taking your time to share your knowledge and experience with our audience, Sari. Thank you.